All right. Well, let's, um, let's pray. Let's begin with that. Well, Father, we bow before you today. Uh, you're the God um, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We worship you. Uh, you're the, the one who, by your Son, has founded uh, the church. You're the Lord of this church. We want to acknowledge that and live by uh, that truth. Father, we want to obey you in all areas that your word um, tells us to. And we pray that you'd help us to do that in regard to deacons. Lord, as we consider uh, this topic this morning, I pray that you'd open up your eyes to the truth of Scripture, that you'd equip this church with an understanding, a right understanding of deacons. Help us to be good students of your word and um, dig in and, and find out what you've revealed to us about this important office. We thank you, Father for the deacons that you've had serving in this church uh, for many years. They've been a, a tremendous blessing. I uh, thank you for Bob and for Pete. I pray that you continue to encourage them in that service. And Lord, we would ask you that if you um, have planned other men who would be equipped for this role, that you would um, raise them up and it would be obvious to this church. But Father, we want to um, see the work uh, continue and see the work done here. There's so much to do. The harvest is plentiful. And you tell us the laborers are few. And so we pray, Father, that you send out laborers into your harvest. And we'll equip your church. We trust, Lord, that you always do. You always equip it with the gifting that it's needed. And uh, we, we pray that you'd help us to um, have wisdom to acknowledge that, where you've, where you've gifted the right men for this role. But we also wouldn't go ahead of what you would have us do. Lord, we pray for your uh, direction now that this time would be formative to us in our understanding of what the role of deacon is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. All right. We are going to um, be talking about deacons. I'm just going to grab this door. Um. The reason we're, we're talking about deacons is because uh, it's our intention in the next couple of weeks to open up for deacon nominations at this church. Uh, we've, we've had two deacons here who've served very faithfully, and uh, as far as I know, they, they're, not, they're not withdrawing um, immediately. But as the church grows, we have, we have more work to do, and so we need others to come alongside and help with this work. But the whole question is, what is a deacon? What do they do? Um, who becomes a deacon, and we'll talk about the process of how it works at this church. How does um, the diaconate work? How do we implement deacons? Um, and so we want to cover all of that. I'm going to try to work through this quickly. Um, so if you have your Bibles and you've got your fingers like on extra high speed today, let's get them ready for that. Um, but let me start just with a little bit about the importance of, of deacons and this is a bit premature because I haven't really defined what it is for you, but one, one pastor describes deacons as get-it-done kind of guys. Um, the get-it-done kind of men, men who make it happen. Uh, so they are on the ground, tangible works, um, dealing with the, um, the practical needs of the church, some of the merciful needs of the church, and they are the kind of guys that you don't necessarily see front and center, behind the scenes, getting things done. Um, things as simple as uh, turning on the lights, unlocking the doors, making sure that the furnace is working, um, uh, caring for um, some people who are in need, making, if there's widows in the, ho- in, the, 
in the church, uh, caring for their homes, making sure that they are taken care of, those types of, those types of in, very important practical um, works. Uh, there have been two books that I've, I've been reading through in uh, preparation to teach this. One is surprisingly called Deacons uh, by, by Matt Smethers, and the other one is um, Paul's Vision for Deacons by Alexander Strauch. Uh, let me quote for you from uh, Matt Smethers. Who, he says, If you are an elder, and particularly if you are the primary preaching pastor in your church, internalize this. Deacons wrongly deployed can have your ministry, have like cut in half. But deacons rightly deployed can double it. They can also build up the whole congregation or not. Um, I don't know what your experiences are with deacons. They can have a great reputation or they can have a bit of a contentious reputation uh, within the church. And so it's an important role and historically it's been an important role as well. Uh, the early church, you know, right after the, the book of Acts, has, has a number of accounts of the importance of the diaconate, the ministry of uh, members of the church in a particular and official role serving the church. And uh, I won't go into some of the stories from that, but I do want to point out one of the stories, uh, again, that Smethurst refers to about um, 1940 Germany. Uh, he says this, the Nazis, it turns out, do not like deacons. After the Netherlands fell to Germany in 1940, deacons in the Dutch Reformed Church rose up to care for the politically oppressed, supplying food and providing secret refuge. Realizing what was happening, the Germans decreed that the office of deacon should be eliminated. Responding by a, in a general synod in July 17, 1941, the Dutch believers resolved Whoever touches the diaconate interferes with what Christ has ordained as the task of the church. Whoever lays hands on the diaconia lays hands on worship. And the Nazis backed off. Deacons can be crucially important to a church. Uh, Let's look at what scripture has to say about deacons. That word deacon is only used in the scripture in two passages for a total of five times. So if you look up the English word deacon, you're only going to find it five times in your Bible in two passages. It's Philippians 1 and 1 Timothy 3. Those are the only two passages where you find that English word deacon. Our church constitution, by comparison, uses the word deacon uh, 18 times, deacons 22 times, and deaconesses six times. And so you wonder if the Bible only uses deacon five times, and our church constitution is using it on you know order of twenty times. Are we being you know uh, overemphasizing it? Can you come up with a definitive conclusion about deacons when it's only referred to in two passages when it's used so limitedly in the scripture? Can you come to these kind of conclusions? And the answer is yes, because all scripture is from God. It's instructive for us for teaching. And so we want to believe that God's word is sufficient for whatever it speaks about, and it does speak about deacons. Philippians 1 is the first passage that we would refer to. Uh, This is written by the Apostle Paul, obviously the church of Philippi. And the way that he introduces this is, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. 
Now, usually we just run past the introductions to books of the Bible. They aren't, you know, holding all the rich theology that you get later on. But in this case, the point is that as Paul addresses this letter, he's addressing three groups. All of the saints, which would be a comprehensive reference to all of the uh, believers that are at Philippi, but then he's addressing two specific categories within that. He calls it the overseers and the deacons. And so you've got these these two, uh, in a sense, subcategories of saints, overseers and deacons, not that all, saint, all saints fall into those categories, but specifically addressed to the church at Philippi are overseers and deacons. Let's remember for a second who Paul is, because this will help us understand why that's such an important uh, observation. Paul is the apostle of Jesus Christ, appointed by the will of God, specifically commissioned to the Gentiles. And so here you have a, um, a, a man who has special authority, we recognize this, don't we, over the, over the church, uh, because he's a commissioned apostle. And so when he writes letters, they are incorporated into Scripture, uh, and we're still reading them. And so Paul has this special kind of authority that's unique within the church. And so when he writes something, even as obscure as the kind of offices that he refers to at a church, it bears a level of significance because of who he is within the church. Jesus gave him as an official commissioned apostle with a special authority. And we know from the book of Acts that he would go around planting churches, Uh, He'd go preach the gospel, people would be saved, and these churches would be set up. If you go to Acts chapter 14, you see some of his authority within the the early church. He's been preaching during this missionary journey along with Barnabas. And in Acts 14 verse 21, it says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. These are places they've already been already preached the gospel, churches are already uh, planted there. And then verse 22, it says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And here's the key verse. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So as Paul and Barnabas return through the churches, they're taking this task of encouraging them, but specifically also appointing elders who have some, in a sense, undefined role as of yet, but have a a particular office within the church. So you have the Apostle Paul, commissioned by the will of God to plant churches, and as he does that, he's setting up these elders. So Paul had authority. He writes with authority. And when he writes letters in Scripture, we read them like our lives depend on it. And when we think about how the church is to run, we go to the scriptures to find out how is this thing supposed to work? How is this church supposed to function? And so when Paul introduces a letter and identifies two categories, elders and deacons, our ears should perk up and think, well, what is he talking about? This is hugely significant. Now, when Paul addresses the saints at Philippi, we know who those are. Those are all believers. But who are these elders and deacons? Let's um, kind of presuppose a little bit of ignorance about those offices for a moment and see what Scripture has to say about it. Now, in order to really understand um, deacons, we have to start with understanding elders. If you don't understand elders, you won't understand deacons.
deacons. Paul refers to them in Philippians uh, 1 as overseers, but there's a kind of a couple different words uh, that are used in Scripture of the same office. So let's, let's look at this. So we're just going to unpack a little bit about what uh, this office or this role of elders is. Go to Acts 20. Acts 20, verse 17. You are, I know I'm speaking fast. I'm doing that intentionally. But if you do have a question, you can go ahead and let me know. Um, Acts 20, verse 17. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So Paul's on his way back to Jerusalem. He doesn't want to stop in Ephesus uh, for, two, for any length of time, actually. So he calls the elders. He doesn't call all of the saints of Ephesus, but he calls the elders to come to him. Now, the word for elders there is a Greek word called presbyteros. You understand that, where we get uh, Presbyterian. Uh, but elders is not uh, specifically exclusive to Presbyterianism. It's just the nature of the Greek word, presbyteros. Uh, that word, we, we uh, translate as elders, can be used of those having older age. It's also used to describe honorable officials in local councils and synagogues. But for Christians, it came to mean those who preside as leaders over Christian assemblies. So they're not necessarily older in age, although the term elder would, in a sense, imply that. But really what it's implying is an uh, uh, a maturity that exists within the leadership. And so they are, they are elders. Uh, it's referring to an official role in the church responsible for leading the church. So Paul has called these presbyteros to him uh, from the church of Ephesus to come to him. And in Acts 20, he's going to give this amazing speech that lays out some of their responsibilities. And maybe one of the highlights would be Acts twenty twenty eight. Again, he's not speaking to the whole church. He's speaking to the presbyteros or the elders. In verse 28, he exhorts them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. It's a really crucial verse for understanding what the role of an elder is. There's a couple of words there we should pick out. One, uh, when it says, pay careful attention to all the flock, uh, it's using a, a word for sheep. Uh, you know that. That's what it's referring to. Uh, you've got a church that's considered as a, a, uh, akin to a flock of sheep. And when it says, that the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, that's the same kind of word, poimeneo, uh, which is to shepherd. So the caring is a shepherding kind of caring that is to be done. The word that's used for overseers there in verse 28 is the word episkopos. So now we've got presbyteros, and now we've got episkopos, and now you're thinking we're Presbyterians and Episcopals. Uh, but the, real, the reality of it is that it simply means this overseeing role within the church. Um, note that it's referring to the same group of people. So you've got elders, presbyteros, who have the task of overseeing, episkopos. And so it's the same role. So it's not, it, we shouldn't, we shouldn't um, 
ever conclude that there are, there are different roles. There's the role of overseer and there's the role of elder, a role of bishop and the role of elder. It's the same, it's the same role biblically, uh, same group of people. And when it refers to oversight, it's, it's referring to the official role in, um, uh, in giving the function of it to give oversight to the group of people that they're to care for. And the way that they care for them or give oversight is by watching over the welfare of others. That's what that word episkopos means. So elders refers to the spiritual maturity of the person. Episkopos refers to the function of the person and the leadership that they give. In the church, in this case, the role that they're to have in giving oversight is not primarily the management of finances, logistics, seating, but of caring for the souls of the people of the church. That's why it says, again, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. It's referring to a spiritual shepherding, a care of souls. So, you have elders, you have overseers, and the specific job that they have is to care for the church of God, giving oversight of the people. Another important passage is 1 Peter chapter 5. Verse 1. This is the Apostle Peter writing. He says, So I exhort the elders among you, so he's speaking to those um, presbyteros, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So you see the same languages there. The the job of an elder or of an overseer is to shepherd, specifically the flock of God. Exercising oversight. So there is a leadership component to this, a real leading that the elders need to possess, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So there's the, the role of elders described, it's that of Shepherding. This is where we get the word pastor. The pastor is a shepherd uh, taking care of the flock. So, elders, overseers, pastors are all the same. It's the same role within the church, and their main job is to care for the people of God by shepherding their souls. Um, This role is a gift for the church. In Ephesians 4, 11 to 12, says, and he, this is referring to Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. So the shepherds and teachers is most likely the same group. It kind of stands out a bit more in the Greek text that they are united. The shepherds are doing their shepherding by their teaching. And this is a gift from God to his church that the shepherds 
would be shepherding through the teaching that they give. Shepherd teachers. So the first official role within the church that is ongoing, the role of an apostle is not ongoing, that ended, um, but the ongoing official role is that of an elder. They're responsible for the leadership, oversight of the church, not primarily the building, but the people. They care for the souls of the people purchased by the blood of Christ. So when Paul writes in Philippians 1 to the overseers, we know who he's referring to. Scripture is really clear about that. Um, They are the, the spiritual leaders of the church, caring for the souls of the people. But there's this second group that he refers to, to the overseers and deacons. So who are the deacons? Now, the typical way that we hear these, these groups, you hear about uh, pastors and deacons, and typically, like, just kind of, um, uh, I don't know, the, the, just the quintessential kind of uh, American church would view, uh, you've, got the main, you've got the main pastor guy. Right? He's, the, he's the leader of the church. He's like Moses with the, with the staff, you know, leading all the other, all the other people. Uh, it's the Moses model. You got the one main guy. And then you've got the deacons who are the kind of governing body of the church that keep that one guy in check. And, um, and that's kind of the way it's typically thought of. The biblical model is that there is a plurality of elders, a plurality of pastors. There's not just one Moses guy in the church. There's, there's more than one of them, and they are to be the leaders of the church, giving oversight of the church. Um, the deacons, then, what are they? Well, again, there's, there's that, that common view that they are they're the governing body of the church. You know, the pastor takes care of preaching, and then the deacons take care of everything else. Um, there's also another view uh, that would say that deacons are just anyone who serves in the church. That's a deacon. Uh, there's a church that Priscilla and I were members of, and one day, uh, well, we'd been, we'd been teaching uh, kids Sunday school, and one day we got a letter saying, uh, congratulations, uh, you are recognized as deacons now. And um, surprise, that's <laughs> uh, great. Um, well, what now? Well, you just keep on doing the same thing you've been doing. Uh, so it's like everybody who served in any capacity was a, was a deacon. Um, I understand that view, uh, but I don't think that's necessarily the, the, the best model. Um, there's also those who would view, you know, the, the deacons are specifically those who take care of the maintenance of the church building. So uh, if you've got somebody who's handy in the church, bam, you're a deacon. And you are going to be fixing um, the sink now because it's leaking. Congratulations. That's a, another view. It's like just the, just the physical property management stuff. Um, let's think now about what the Scripture would reveal to us about what deacons are. There are three, uh, three related words to deacons. There's a, there's a verb, 
there's an abstract noun, and then there's just kind of a regular old noun. Uh, Dikoneo would be the verb. Uh, you can you can hear or diakoneo. You can hear in that in the Greek, uh, or better the noun diakonos. When we say deacon, we're just taking the Greek word and making it English. And so when you do that, you're not really saying all that much about it. Well, you ask, well, what's a what's a deacon? Well, a deacon's a diakonos. Well, what's that? You know, and so we're basically using Greek in our English, and we're not giving any definition to it. We don't typically do that uh, when we translate from um, from the scripture. Uh, we give it a, a English meaning, but in this case, it's deacon. Uh, the verb is used thirty-seven times, and here's how it's usually used: it's generally to render service in a variety of ways either at someone's behest or voluntarily. Um, so it's, it entails serving. What is to diakoneo? Well, it is to serve. Mark 10.45 is a great illustration of this. And one of the books I read uh, made a, a great point about this. Let me read it and then go back and read it again. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let me read that again. Uh, And here's the way one of those books put it. It says, For even the Son of Man came not to be deaconed, but to deacon and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, This is that same verb of service. Uh, Diakonia is the next one. That's an abstract noun, and that just means service. So there's the verb of to serve, and then there's just the, the, the thing that they produce, which is service. Uh, you know this passage in Luke 10, verse 40. It says, But Martha was distracted with much serving, much service. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. She was distracted with the the service, and that's the product of serving. Uh, So that's, you're getting a sense of what this this word means. Uh, It's often translated as ministry in 2 Corinthians. Uh, Paul has a, a service or a ministry that he renders and then the final word is diakonos. Uh, that's used 29 times. And generally, that's referring to the person, a servant. So you've got to serve, you've got the product of, service, which is, er, of serving, which is service, and then you've got diakonos, which is the person, the servant. Uh, so generally, it's defined as this. Generally, one who is busy with something in a manner that is of assistance to someone. Uh, so Matthew twenty twenty six says, as Jesus is talking with disciples about uh, who's the greatest, he says, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, or whoever would be great among you must be your deacon. Uh, can also be used uh, this way. Uh, one who gets something done at the behest of a superior Assistant to someone. This is um, probably the way it's going to be used in our main passage in 1 Timothy 3 as well as Philippians 1. So hear that again. It's 
one who gets something done at the behest of a superior, assistant to someone, then becomes more specific. One who serves as an assistant in a cultic, or that means religious, context. An attendant, an assistant, an aide. And it's as one identified for special ministerial service in a Christian community. So this group of words generally entails service. It could be a variety of ways to serve. It could be serving like a waiter at uh, serving food. Um, it could be a house servant. Um, but generally just understand it as one who is serving. Now go to 1 Timothy 3. Verse 8. Actually, look at verse, verse 1 to start. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. And it goes on to list his qualifications. We know who that is. We know that's a specific role within the church. Not everybody possesses um, and has unique function within the church. Verse 8, after finishing up about elders or overseers, he says, deacons, that diakonos word, likewise must be dignified. Here he seems to be referring to it not as a generic uh, servant, which we all are to be to one another, but as to a specific role within the church. that has a, a function. Um, it's an office. Let's get a little background on 1 Timothy. It'll help us put this in context. Uh, Timothy is protege of Paul. Timothy is ministering at Ephesus, in the same place that Paul stopped on his way to Jerusalem and called the elders. So Paul's familiar with the church. Paul begins the letter in chapter 1 by getting straight to the point. Uh, he gives a real brief introduction. But then in one three, he says to Timothy, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia... Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. So immediately, this is one of those letters where Paul just kind of skips over the pleasantries, gets straight to the point, and tells his young protege, Timothy, here's why I left you in Ephesus. Charge certain persons not to teach a different doctrine. Ephesus is dealing with false teachers. And Paul wants none of it, and he's left his man there, Timothy, get things straight. So there's this um, danger within the church that is going on through false teachers. Chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says to Timothy, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. So he, he puts... On Timothy, this charge, you're at war, and you need to care for the church. And he says in verse 19, holding faith in a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. He's warning Timothy about real dangers within the church to real people's souls, and wants Timothy to get things in order. Now, as He's telling Timothy this. He kind of summarizes 
all that he's saying in chapter 3, verse 15. He says, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. He wants the church at Ephesus to be strong, to uphold the truth. That's being debilitated by the presence of false teachers. And so Paul is giving Timothy specific instructions about how to set up the church so that it will be strong in the face of error. That's the background. How is the church going to be protected? Well, one of the ways it's going to be protected is in chapter 2, verse 8. He says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray. So he gives instructions about men and just general what men in the church should be doing. And then he says what women should be doing. Verse 9, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. He gives instructions about both men and women in the church. And then he goes on right after that in chapter 3 to say, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now he gets into the role of elders. So in trying to protect the church from false teachers, there has to be an order to the church. He talks about the responsibilities of men and women, that's everybody. But then he narrows it down to these specific roles, and he talks about elders. And then right after that, he talks about deacons. And so we know that this role is so significant that Paul wants to take time to explain who these guys can be who can inherit the role of a deacon because this is going to be crucial for the proper functioning of the church. And the proper functioning of the church is keeping false teaching out and the people inside of the church safe. Well, how do you do that with deacons? Go to Acts 6. How do you do that with official servants in the church? We'll get to Acts 6. Um, Let's start actually in Acts 2. Acts 2 is Pentecost. Peter preaches the gospel. 3,000 people come uh, to faith that day. They're baptized. And then look at 2.42. You have great fellowship. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. And think, man, that is the church right there. This is fantastic. Things are going well. People are loving each other, selling and giving and taking care of one another. Nobody had any need. Uh, people are being saved. Well, Acts 4 comes, and there's a little bit of trouble. Two of the apostles are called before the council, and in verse 17, the Jewish council, uh, they are warned not to speak anymore in the name of Christ. We know that Satan is out to destroy the church, and so there's this persecution that comes, and Peter and John are told no more preaching in the name of Christ. Well, what do they do? Verse 32, sorry, not verse 32, they're released, they report what they had said, the church prays 
And then in verse 32, um, it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. So they go through this season of testing. Persecution happens. The church prays and they come together and everything's good. Uh, They have boldness. They continue preaching. There's not a needy person among them. Well, Acts 5 happens. Ananias and Sapphira. Remember that story. You should. Uh, you've got these, this husband and wife team that sees everybody else doing these kind things. They sell a piece of property. They hold back some for themselves, which was actually, actually okay. The problem was they lied about it to Peter, and so they died. And great fear fell upon the whole church. It says in 5.11, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And you think, well, that was a real danger right there. People within the church start lying and uh, the church could be torn apart. But fear comes upon the church. In verse 12, it says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets. So, disaster with Ananias and Sapphira. But the church is strengthened. People are added. So you've got all these dangers that are happening, but it's averted. Now you come to Acts 6. Well, even the end of Acts 5, you've got imprisonment, beating uh, of the apostles. But afterwards, they're, uh, they go out in Acts 5.41... They're rejoicing that they're accounted worthy to suffer dishonor in the, for the name. In verse 42, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So you just think, man, this church has been through everything. It's doing great. And you've got Acts 6. Now in these days, you could in parentheses, when it seemed like everything was going great. Yeah, there's persecution, but they're going through that. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So here's a a major problem. But now it's, it's within the church. And you have a situation where... Uh, they're in Jerusalem. The church is still isolated to that place. And, but it's composed of different kinds of Jews. You've got the, like, born in uh, Israel, Hebrew of Hebrew Jews. And then you've got those who have been scattered around the world and have adopted the Greek culture Jews. And they are the Hellenists. They speak the Greek language. They have the Greek culture. And now they're together in the church. And remember when there is not one needy person among them, That's not the case anymore because for some reason the Hellenist uh, Jewish widows are being overlooked in the ministrations, literally the, the, the deaconings in the church. The servings that need to happen in there are being 
uh, overlooked when it comes to these Hellenist Jews. So, you've got widows who aren't being ministered to by the church. Not only are they not being ministered, but they're of a, a kind of different group within the church. And you know how quickly factions can arise in a church. You know how quickly there can be cliques. Oh, you like the Red Sox? You're the, you're the best Christian. Oh, you like the Yankees? You're the best Christian. Now you've got to divide between Red Sox and Yankees fans within the church. I mean, it happens so quickly. You like Italian food? Great. You hate Italian food? I don't like you. You know, you've got these factions that develop over ridiculous things. And so you've got in the church, what is the greatest threat facing it at this moment? Well, the potential for these factions to develop. And the apostles get word of it. But immediately, what do they say? It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, elders are not apostles. That is really, really clear. But the chief responsibility of the elders is for the spiritual care of the flock through teaching. So, you have this kind of model within the church. The apostles recognize what they are to do. They recognize there's a need, and they can't go and serve tables or deacon tables in order to address this problem, but it needs to be addressed, and it is a big problem. It's not insignificant. And so here's the solution. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven good men, seven men of good repute. It needed a good reputation. Everybody would know these guys, yep, they're responsible. We, we know what they're like. Um, they've got a good reputation. Full of the spirit and of wisdom. So they're not just picking up the guys who you know, how to, know how to cook a good meal. Um, they're not the, the guys who um, just look good on the outside. They're not the business managers of the church. They're the men who have a reputation, who are full of the Spirit and are full of wisdom. Because there are thousands of people, and it's going to be a logistical nightmare to figure out how to get this thing working, right? It's hard. It's hard to manage something like that. So they need the wisdom. And they will, it says, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Most of those names are Greek names, by the way. And so there's some wisdom about what happens with the setting up of who these men are going to be that serve the widows. And the people are pleased. And look what happens in verse 7. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. You can't have a growing church, spiritually and numerically, without the word being taught, without prayer being devoted to. But you also can't have a healthy church if the widows aren't being cared for. And to rightly care for the widows, you need to do it well, intentionally, strategically, by men who are qualified for a job like that. 
this is really a foundation for deacons. It doesn't say that these were the first deacons, but it sets the stage for what we understand deacons are to be and do. And you just see how important it is to have a, uh, the cogs of the church wheels just running smoothly. And that's, I think, what deacons can provide. They kind of provide the, the oil to the engine that keep things running, running smoothly. How important that is. That is so crucial. I'd asked John before if I, could, if I needed the time to go into next week, if I could do that. And I need the time, John. Because um, we haven't even talked about the, um, the qualifications of them, which is really important. We need to take time to do that. Uh, but I hope you, you at least understand from this, there is an official role of deacon within the church. And they have a huge responsibility to help the church function smoothly. Because without a smoothly functioning church, um, people get overlooked. If people get overlooked, that's a, that's a bad thing for the church's witness. And so it goes hand in hand. Yes, elders preach, teach, pray. And deacons need to serve the church and keep things running smoothly. We'll take time next week to, um, to dive into the qualifications of deacons from 1 Timothy 3. Uh, also go through, maybe more specifically, the role of deacons at the church. Let me highlight um, here. I have two, actually, um, really just one thing for you. Uh, if anybody wants this, um, I'll go over this more next week, but this is deacons at our church, and it just rolls through a little bit of what our Constitution says, uh, the character requirements just taken from 1 Timothy 3, and then the process that will follow uh, for our church, how we, how we proceed on this. And then I have a, um, it's the same sheet, but it just has another, another thing attached to it, which is the nomination form for deacons. Um, we will start receiving these nominations uh, next week. Um, if you want to take one home now, but let me just qualify a couple of important things. Um, if you want to take one home now, you, you may. Um, the people nominating a deacon need to be a, a member, whoever's doing the nominating. Um, whoever is nominated needs to be a member as well. And whoever's nominated needs to give approval to the nomination by signing this little sheet. And um, it will detect forgeries as well. So... <laughs> Watch out. Um, there's, there's more to it than that, but I, I'm sure maybe some of you have some people in mind and, and you'd like to be considering that and praying about that. You can grab one of these if you want to do that, or you can just grab one of these front pages if you don't have a nomination, but you just want to see uh, more information. Um, but before I close, the reason we need to take time on this is because um, Paul takes time with it as he lays out the qualification for deacons, again, it's not just somebody who can fix things. Um, it's not the person who has management background. It's the person of, of character that fills this, this role. And, you know, we've been, we've been asked for a while, you know, can we get, let's get some more deacons. It's like, well, yeah, that would be, that'd be great. But remember that quote I read to you at the beginning? Deacons can have your ministry. Or they can double it. And so we are not to be hasty in the laying on of hands. And, um, and so there is a process. There are qualifications. And we want to take it seriously uh, because the Lord takes it seriously. 
Uh, and, and there's a lot more to say, and we'll get into that more next week. Um, for now, let's, uh, let's close in prayer. If you guys have questions, feel free to come up to me afterwards. I've used up all of our time for questions, but there will be next week as well. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we want to handle this process in a way that honors you. And um, we don't want to be arrogant, Lord, uh, in thinking that we have it all down. And so we, we submit this to you. And we ask that if it's your will, that there would be uh, more men who are appointed as deacons in this church, that we would follow your will and your process, that we'd be faithful to your word, you give us understanding. Um, Lord, we, we acknowledge again that this is your church, and we pray that you'd be the one who gets all of the glory for building it. It wouldn't be to us, Lord. It would be to your name that all glory goes. Help us, Father, to be found faithful. It's, um, it's hard to do sometimes when our flesh gets in the way, and uh, we have things that we want or want to do, but Lord, would you... Um, Quiet all of our hearts before you and make us a people that is humble and willing to receive uh, what is best from you. We thank you, Father, for this time and for the riches of your word that uh, really rewards us when we dig in. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.